Ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Real Mission Impossible show with Coach MJ. Are you ready? We search the globe for the most amazing people who have overcome incredible obstacles, demonstrated amazing resilience, and done the impossible. I said, are you ready? May the real life heroes of Mission Impossible from around the world be inspired, be motivated. Join, Join the, the real, real Coach, Coach MJ. MJ on the Real Mission Impossible show. Let me just do a little preliminary introduction by saying that the introduction, which I could give, would be about six, 17 hours long. But in the short sense, I'll say that this, this gentleman is a true sales legend. Um, he's a, a very successful author. Uh, he is probably the pioneer of the whole uh, speaking circuit here in the United States, has, has worked with legends like W. Clement Stones, uh, Dr. Robert Schuler, uh, Zig Ziglar, uh, so many others. Um, so I would just like to say thank you again for coming and and you will, we'll give you some folks, we'll give you some links where you can follow him and his website and his books, uh, which will be edited toward the end of the show. So thank you so much for joining us, audience, and uh, over to uh, Ben. May I just call you Ben today or should we call go with the third? <laughs> ben will be fine. Okay. What does your wife call you? Uh, ben. Okay. Or hey, hey you. Hey you. Yeah, I got, I got a hey you. I got a hey you. <laughs> hey you. I saw, I saw something. I, uh, I caught something on her phone the other day. As uh, you know, like it's your name. You know, when you see your name on the phone as written down as the husband, you know you're in trouble. <laughs> There, there are a lot of us like that. Yes, sir. We we, we have a, a club. We meet on Wednesdays and sympathize with each other. Really? Come. <laughs> that sounds like a support group I could really appreciate. So tell me, uh, thankfully, uh, you've made it this far, uh, not just in life, but through these crazy 18 months of this pandemic we've been all been enduring. Um, how have you fared? How has your family fared through this? Uh, so far, so good. We've been lucky. We we got vaccinated. I know there's political things on all sides and medical opinions, but I asked my doctor and he said, get it and got us on the list. We did that both shots several months ago. And uh, uh, immediate close, close friends. We've had a couple of milder cases. Uh, but uh, nothing to put anybody in the hospital. And uh, so we're, we're good there. Our current problem, if, if behind this uh, computer I'm looking into, there was a window instead of a wall. I'd be looking at the, the uh, what's called the Kofax or something fire. 65,000 acres when I went to bed last night. I went out to open the car door for Gigi to go somewhere. Uh, this morning, car was covered with soot, smoke in the air. I have hay fever, so uh, I'm, I'm sensitive. I, I already have hay fever before the smoke gets here. So, but I think we're gonna we're gonna miss it. Unfortunately, we've had several friends lose their houses, and uh, in one case, their whole little town, Grizzly Flats, is gone. So uh, interesting times there, but it's always something, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, been the whole thing. I remember the, 
think it was Ken Blanchard. Uh, you, you probably have connected with Ken over the years when he sure. worked up Who Moved My Cheese? Boy, this is a Who Moved My Cheese moment, isn't it? For everyone all around the world. Sure is. Uh, you don't, I'm sort of running out of places to look. I was watching the news this morning and uh, that was uh, not good in Afghanistan. I look out the window, it looks like the world is on fire. That's not good. And uh, although we don't wear a mask here, if I go to the store or something today, I'll run into a bunch of people with masks on. That's not good. Not the mask, why they're wearing them is not good. But I repeat, we've been, I'm old enough to have been through, I knew people who fought in the Civil War, believe it or not. And I knew- Oh, you don't, that's, that's not true. You're making that up, come on now. No, the first man I met when I moved to Atlanta, Georgia in 1948, I was six, was an old man named Arthur who had a mule and a plow and he could go around the neighborhood. I don't know what his expanse was but he was born a slave in the slave cabin that he still lived in behind an old mansion across the street from us. And he would, in addition to let me ride around in a mule cart, uh, would take me up to the Confederate soldiers' homes. And he said, you gotta know all sides of the story. And I would go into the Confederate soldiers' home, probably on 10 occasions, and talk to people who fought as young men, boys, at Bull Run in Chancellorville, and, and uh, so on. So I literally knew people that, that uh, fought in the Civil War. My grandfather in World War One. my father in World War II. I was a Vietnam era person, but I was in the Coast Guard. I had the Cuban Patrol picking up, doing what today, what we were doing 60 years ago, picking up refugees, getting them to safety and so on. So I said all that to say this, this is not my first rodeo. We will get through it. But as the Chinese, the Chinese have a curse, and the curse is may you live. May you in live in interesting, interesting times. times. Yes, that's right. Boy, we won't even talk about China today. But thanks for bringing it up. Yep. Uh, I have a couple questions for you, uh, but I'm just really eager to get into um, your connection with uh, one of my heroes, Dr. Robert Schuler. Um, how did you guys meet? What was your what was the whole connection there, Dr. Robert Schuler? By the way. For those of you who don't know this, uh, coined and wrote the phrase and then uh, authored the book, uh, Tough Times May, what is it, Tough Times Never Last, but Tough People Do. Right. Yeah, great guy. Uh, Danny Cox, who's a retired speaker. Right. I met him, uh, real estate primarily, but he's spoken all sorts of things. But he, he sent me an email about a year ago and he said, Ben, I've unpacked. So he's home in Garden Grove, California, and he's done. So uh, he hired me to work with the real estate company, Forrest Olson, Tommy Hopkins, who's one of their uh, young salespeople and so on, uh, to work, come down and work with them and speak to them and so on. But Danny was also the leading layman at the Crystal Cathedral, officially the Garden Grove Community Church. but where the Hour of Power was based and where Dr. Schuler was the minister and founder and so on. And uh, so I met him and they invited me to speak several times at the cathedral, uh, primarily at their positive thinkers, positive thinking or positive thinkers luncheon. And we became buddies. He was just a, a wonderful man. 
when I first was introduced to him, Danny Cox said, now look, when you meet him, don't mention Holiday Magic Cosmetics. That was the MLM that I joined and started my real serious career in back in 1965. And I said, why not? He said, well, you know, there's some controversy about MLM and, and so on. So just, just don't mention it, whatever. So we go to lunch and, and I mentioned, uh, I said something about William Penn Patrick said, and William Penn Patrick was the owner and founder of Holiday Magic and one of my early mentors. And Schuler put his fork down and he said, you knew William Penn Patrick? I said, yeah, he was my best friend and I worked for him and, and I was president of his company. He said, Holiday Magic. And he leaned forward, he said, tell me how you did it. And I looked over at Danny, he rolled his eyes. It didn't take long to do what he asked me not to do, but it wasn't my fault. But he wanted to know how we started with nothing and got it up to a million dollars a day in 1967, $8. So it's about three and a half billion dollars in today's money it's per it's year. Unthinkable. Yeah, unthinkable. Yeah, yeah well, he... He, he wanted to know, how'd you do that? And I said, well, I was funny you'd ask. I was about to ask how you built this thing, the Crystal Cathedral, opened the doors, $17 million in construction costs, which was a lot of money at the time, debt-free. So we swapped stories about how we did it. And there were amazing similarities between how he built the Crystal Cathedral and how Bill and I built Holiday Magic Cosmetics. Ted, my favorite, I just posted on Facebook in response to something somebody asked me um, not too long ago, after we got past the, the uh, pleasantries of getting to know each other, I asked him one time, I said, Dr. Shula, how did you build, and by then it was Bob and Ben, but Dr. Shula, how did you build this thing and make it unique? This is not the only church in America. And I expected him to give me some biblical, you know, deep philosophy and, and uh, so on. And he said, Ben, it was simple. Visibility, where he built the church. Uh, accessibility in Southern California, getting to something is a challenge. And parkability. Visibility, accessibility, and parkability. I said, I was thinking a little more a religious answer. He said, Ben, we all teach out of the same book. <laughs> so he had to get his message where people could get to it. As yeah. you know, he started on the roof, on the snack bar roof of a drive-in theater. Uh, and because he had no money, he had no building, and he figured maybe people would, more people would come if they could come in their robe and pajamas and bring the family, and they did. And so when he built the Crystal Cathedral, when he started preaching, this huge glass, it was all glass, 5,000 individual windows. Uh, this huge glass door wall would open, and he'd spend half his time looking at the congregation inside and half the time looking at the congregation out in the parking lot because he was still thinking like he was back in the drive-in theater. The only difference was in the drive-in theater, you had to put the speaker off the post and in your car to hear him. Right. Uh, by the time he, by the time he got to the Crystal Cathedral, it was a radio station. So you turned on your radio and you heard it. But anyway, great guy, and that's how I met him. It was like many of the things that I've done. Meeting interesting people has been my side hobby. That's how I met Charlie Manson, 
how I met the uh, astronauts uh, when I was coaching Apollo 15, 16, 17 as their attitude coach and so on. I've gone out of my way to meet interesting people. So I always say, well, I was lucky I bumped into them. It's true, but I've got myself into a lot of positions where I was lucky. To, I was looking to bump into somebody. Yeah, I, I, uh, I was reading some of your background. I just found it fascinating. And some of the people that there's been a, a, a parallel or, or some type of a contact with, for example, W. Clement Stone. W. Clement yep. Stone, uh, he authored uh, what was Success System That Never Fails a, a, man, a million years ago. And I remember meeting him in Europe. Uh, I won't even date myself, but Fred, Fred <laughs> Flintstone was sitting next to me. And, um, <laughs> and, and before I boarded the plane, I saw him in his little entourage and I walked up and I was, you know, cocky little 20 year old kid and I put, plunged my hand forward. I said, W. Clement Stone, how are you? Of course, he gave me this healthy, wealthy and wise. Yeah. <laughs> and he shook my hand. I guess that turned out to be his trademark uh, introduction. So I sat on a plane and I was burning the whole time. Well, I need to go talk to this guy. I need to go say something to him. So I finally got up the courage to go up to the business class. I sat right behind him. There's his minders, two minders uh, next to him. I guess the guy was having a nap, you know, probably busy uh, because he ran at that time uh, one of the largest insurance companies in America. Is that right? Combined, combined insurance. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it, it was a. Uh, it was a big deal, and then I wanted to just to get him to wake him up so I could tell him something. And I was trying to think what I'm going to say. And what came to my mind to say, um, I was never able to tell him. I was only able to tell his mind. And I ended up, the same exact words that I used to what I want to say clever to him, I ended up uh, doing a TED Talk years, years later uh, on those words and wrote my first book on those words. So inspired by that and you you met some of these people and and what you've been inspired words? by others were, don't leave this hanging what were the words oh no 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 this is the, this is a show about you the closers come on now <laughs> well, right uh, little, i read somewhere see, I read somewhere how about how many knows because you you closed so many deals and you were it's said that you are the world's greatest closer that nobody ever sold as much as you did. How many how many no's did you have to get to get all those yeses? Like Michael Oddly, Jordan that enough. he had to shoot so many, missed so many shots before yeah. he won all the prizes. Uh, these are estimates, because you know, when you give you, like I've given 5,000 paid appearances uh, and probably that many free appearances in prisons, churches, and getting ready to start charging. But uh, I did, I did, you know, I don't have a list where this is number 4,999. I did it based on an estimate, looking back at my career, how many times did I speak a day, a week, a month, and so on, sort of came down to 5,000. So I'm not claiming this is exact, but based on, not counting group presentations, you know, 17,000 people or whatever in an arena, but one-on-one, -on face-to-face, uh, now, frequently on the, the internet, but the uh, vast majority of them need to need face-to-face, up close and personal. I figure I've given about 100,000 uh, sales presentations, you know, blah, 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 uh, close. And uh, 
my closing ratio, again, we figured it out sort of from behind and then have kept it current, is about 86%. Now, I can't seem to get it above it. I've never hit 90, except you know, on a good day, but as far as a, a month or a quarter or whatever, 86%. So if I've given 100,000 face-to-face presentations and I have an 86% closing rate, the answer to your question is 16,000 people have listened to me. I'm charming, I'm friendly, I usually know my product, know the presentation, gave them my magic clothes, and 16,000 people said no. So if rejection is something that really bothers you, this is not your business. <laughs> get into, get into some, work at McDonald's. You know, yeah, something. right. Yeah, if you want security, go there, right? So, yeah, so uh, 16,000 no's at least. I heard uh, you say something. I'm going to go back to it. Uh, it was about uh, arena sales. So you were presenting to groups in an arena. How many people did you say at one time? Uh, numerous times, 15, 16, 17,000 uh, people uh, in some group for some reason, some convention or gathering or what have you. I've done that. Uh, would that have been a times. keynote, Ben? Would that be a keynote or would you have actually presented a product and and, and a call to action right then and there? Usually, uh, you know, motivate them, stir them up, educate them, but you have the right to ask for money. Uh, and so it's a little bit of both. If you don't motivate people, motivation, as Zig used to say, you know, wears off rather quickly. That's the reason we recommend it like bathing every day, uh, but motivation and so on. And I don't, I probably have done less than a hundred keynotes in my life. I despise them. Uh, it's everybody's waiting for them to start serving the food and, and uh, let the drinking begin. And I can't accomplish much in 30 minutes to an hour, uh, hour maybe, but uh, 30 minutes or so. So I, my uh, deal is I have a set fee and I don't care how many people you put in the room, my fee is the same. And uh, the, but I have the right to sell. So those groups have run from, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who one of my mentors, Merle Fraser, asked me to drive to Jackson, Mississippi and put on a meeting for him that he couldn't do. And I said, fine. So Jimmy Rucker, my running buddy, the greatest salesman I ever personally worked with, drove from Atlanta to Jackson, Mississippi. It was raining and all, so I had to get cleaned up. I went down to the basement of this gymnasium and I was getting my suit and tie all on. Jimmy came down and said, okay, he's ready. And I said, they're ready? Because room was set up for 500 people. He said, no, he's ready. Sure enough, when I went up, there were 500 chairs, one of which was occupied. I had a wonderful guy named Nolan Bush, who after all these years still does some work with me. And he said it was the most amazing night of his life. He said, you were totally scripted, which was another secret of selling. Uh, and you walked out and said, I, I really apologize that the other 499 didn't show up, but I have no control over them. And I only know one way to present this meeting. It was a holiday magic opportunity. So if you'll uh, sit still for it, I'll put, put on the whole show word for word the way I would have done if the other 500 were here. And he said, go. So I said, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Ben Gay. I'm a general distributor and went into the 
40, well, it was a 47 minute thing including the film. Went into the whole thing. And when I got through, the film said, turn to the person who brought you here, ask how you can get started. Lights came up with Rucker football. <laughs> and I sat down with Nolan, drew some circles on a pad. And he came up with $5,000. And uh, he joined the business, not under me, it was under Merle Frazier, but that was the promise I'd made. Here's how a good deed can come back. Years later, I'm running a different company. The uh, fee to be at the very top level is $24,625.13. $75,000 worth of product at a 65% discount, as best I recall. So I go up to the front of the room. There's 50 people there. They've all paid 10000 They had to be there. And uh, I start my presentation and I said, uh, at the conclusion of this in 10 days, if you have the money, here's what you're going to do. And I explained to him what the, what, the, what the big close was. And this guy stood up in the back of the room. He said, uh, I could tell that Mr. Gay didn't recognize me, but I sure know him. And what you want to know is, can you trust him? And the answer is yes. And here's my check brought cashier's check with the balance between the 10,000 he paid to be there and the 24,625.13 that was required to be in the top thing. So whatever that is, $17,000 and hand it to me. He said, what you want to know is, can you trust him? Can I trust him? And I said, wow, thank you. He said, my name is Nolan Bush and you and I met in Jackson, Mississippi one night, stormy, rainy night, and you A, got there, B, got dressed, put on the whole presentation and everything you told me came true. So I don't have to wonder if you tell the truth, here's my check. And that room, there might've been one or two people in there who couldn't come up with the money, but basically that room was 100% closed based on Nolan based on what I had done to him 10 or 15 years before in Jackson, Mississippi, one stormy night. Karmic momentum. There it is. Wow. Yeah. What an electrifying that, night that must have been. And what did you do yeah. to celebrate? Please tell me you went out and had a pizza or something. <laughs> you know, I keep it funny you should ask. There were a bunch of people in town, so I probably went out to dinner with the staff and so on. But. Uh, I keep a list of things I get next whenever I make an achievement of any kind. I've been the head of my own company for years, so there's no one around to have a dinner for me and give me a trophy. So I give myself trophies and I make a little list, nothing on the list I couldn't just go out and buy, but I don't buy it until I achieve the next little whatever. Cute story about that. One day I uh, got a cold call from a guy and before we got off the phone, he paid to have me speak, 9,500, and he, uh, plus airfare and hotel. And he bought about $30,000 worth of books and so on, so that when I got there, his staff would already be up to speed on what I was doing. So, a 10, I don't know, $30,000 sale. And uh, I got off the phone and Gigi said, Pants, you have to be in the office. She said, fantastic. What's on the list? So I got out my list. The next thing on it was a package of white socks from from Walmart, you know, for casual dress. Yeah, yeah, that right. right. They come 12, 12 in a bag? Yeah, that type of thing. But it, it was, 
I, I wish it had been like a new car or something because I sort of deserved it. Yeah, but, but I got the, the, that, you, that sale in a pack of socks. But you'd already written it down, Ben. So you know, it's on yep. the list. It's commitment. It's, it's what. It's what's next, and it makes yeah. you keep going to, to get down to the car <laughs> or whatever. Right. Well, that's a that's a lot of white socks to get to the white walls. <laughs> Speaking of white walls, you went from cars to astronauts. Tell us about your attitude training. I'm I'm fascinated by this. I read that you were an attitude coach for three of the Apollo missions. Is that true? Yeah, Apollo 15, 16, 17. And the way it happened was uh, one of our distributors was a lovely lady named Jeannie Harrington. And she was what we called a holiday girl, like an Avon lady, go out and sell the products. And she called me one day and she said, Ben, do you remember me? I said, of course. And uh, she said, do you know what my husband does? And I said, not really. I think it's something in aeronautics or something. He's an engineer, right? She said, yeah, he's the launch test supervisor for the manned space program. And he, he's the one that, that nods his head and the rockets take off with his people on board. And uh, I said, Aer- aeronautics. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I was close. <laughs> so, uh, uh, she said, we'd like you to come down, be our guest, stay at the house, and uh, watch Apollo 14 take off. That was uh, Alan Shepard's flight, and they were having trouble with it. It immediately followed 13, which blew up on the way to the moon, and uh, so on. So NASA was in a little bit of turmoil at the time. So I went down just to uh, watch the launch. There was no other, uh, anything else indicated. Well, they had invited the uh, astronauts from 15, 16, and 17, which had no duties the next morning when 14 took off, to a backyard barbecue and a few of their other friends and so on. So I, I thought, God, I wish I'd brought an autograph book. I'm going to get to meet astronauts. And uh, we sat in the living room after the little barbecue was over, and they were sitting around me on the floor, most of them. And I'm sitting in a chair and I'm thinking, there's something wrong. This is role reversal. There's something wrong here. I should be on the floor. And Jim Irwin, the commander of Apollo 15, said, Ben, this is a limited career. You're not an astronaut for 30 years. Um, We're all in the military, so we have that going. But when we retire from the military, we'll still be young men. We want to know what to do. We want to know how we can be like you and make a lot of money and so on. And uh, so I began talking to him. I felt a little awkward because I can role reversal. But I gave him some pretty good advice and some contacts. When you get out, you get blown up in the midst of your career. When you get out, I'll put you in contact with this person, that person. And towards the end of the evening, Jim Irwin stood up. And, uh, and like many of my achievements in life, it wasn't paid. I taught at San Quentin for five years. It wasn't paid. It had to cost me a lot of money. But uh, he said, uh, if, with your permission, I'm going to declare you our attitude coach. Attitude, because he said, we have problems just like anybody else has. Uh, and uh, we're expected to be, you know, at peak performance all the time in our shirts, you know, fixed properly and so on. And, uh, and we draw a lot of attention. There was a Chevrolet dealer down there who gave him the use of a Corvette, each astronaut, as long as they were on flight status. 
So when the, this gang uh, pulled up, there were nine Corvettes outside. It was, they weren't hard to uh, miss. They, they were hard to miss. I said, so we're always on stage, and, but we're sort of concerned about the future. So I became their unpaid attitude coach for that crowd, all of 15, 16, 17, and uh, gave them and the directors of NASA, Dr. Miles My Ross and Dr. Debus, some ideas that they still use to this day. But I repeat, all of it was free. <laughs> yeah, and of course, you know, you're talking to them now about leaving their, when they leave their job to go into entrepreneurialism. And so, you know, what your value proposition would gonna go like this. I'm gonna show you, I'm gonna show you a business that you can take from here and sky is the limit to an astronaut. I'm not sure. <laughs> not sure. Well, astronauts, the sky isn't the limit. Right. It's exactly. not our sky. Yes, yes. Yes, those cliches might not go over very well with those guys. They've already seen it all. Wow, so great, uh, great opportunity. And thank you for that. And I, I totally get it. And what an honor uh, to, to be, uh, whether uh, imposed by them, paid or unpaid, uh, are, you're, you are our attitude coach uh, for, for the astronauts then, and you certainly are now. We'll take your advice. Well, uh, you can, you, can you give me an idea? What do you say to someone today? I, I see a lot of people selling things, and, and you know, we've just been beat to death with with people trying to cram things down our throat. Salespeople have gotten a bad name because people have gone about it so brutally, so wrong, it's more shoving. And, and you know, my, my, my personal take is that, you know, over the years, you know, in, 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 in my career, and, and certainly minuscule to yours, um, we've taken the whole art of selling and turned it into the art of serving. Um, What's your what's your take on that? Well, the good people have always done that. You know, the people you, you read about in the books, Zig, for instance, he and I joined the same business on the same day in the same meeting, and I wound up being his boss when he was alive. I used to love to say that within earshot of him because he was 18 years older than I was and had far more experience, and he was among the major influences in my learning how to speak. Uh, but uh, Zig was not a hard closer. He had a partner, Mel Lanius, who was a hard closer. Uh, I was not really a hard closer. I, uh, in one of my books, Closers Part Two, I write what I really did. It's called Sales Infiltration. I'm a Southern boy. First, I make you my friend, and uh, so on. But the selling profession, and that's what it should be, is a profession. The selling profession has been abused by too many people for too long. It's a joke. You know, if somebody calls you a used car salesman, that's not a compliment. Uh, but it should be because there's nothing inherently dishonest about selling a car. But they've made it that way and they put that image on it. So the terminology keeps shifting. We, we went from being salesmen to consultant, consultative, I can't pronounce it, consultative salespeople. Larry Wilson at the Wilson Learning Institute put that upon us years ago. And then sales counselors 
and most people won't put salesmen on their card on my business card that I have in front of me stuck to the desk so I can't hold it up. But it's Ben Gay the third salesman, speaker, uh, sales trainer, consultant. Salesman is number one. That's what I am, and I'm very proud of it. And I can face anyone I've ever sold anything to and not be afraid that they're going to blow up in my face or be mad at me or what have you. So I've done it on an honest level. And I've, the real secret of selling, if I can jump ahead or sideways or whatever, 85% of all the problems in selling go away if you're selling a quality product or service that's competitively priced, doesn't have to be the cheapest, and you're talking to qualified people, qualified financially, religiously, geographically, whatever, you know, whatever the qualifications are, they're qualified to hear your presentation. Then it's down to knowing how to phrase things. Some people might dare to call that scripting. People say, oh, I don't want to be on a script. You know, well, you're already, if you've been in selling over 30 days, you're on a script now. In certain situations, you tend to say the same thing over and over and over again. That's called a script. The question is, is it a quality script that's been tested and proven? Just like a direct mail letter. You test and you test, finally get down to a control letter, the best you've ever done, and you mail that constantly while testing other lead, uh, other uh, letters, trying to beat your control piece. If you have a good script and uh, you can make a little tweak in it and improve it, great. But until you can do that, don't change it. It becomes your control piece. You, you were talking about getting uh, Holiday Magic up to a million dollars a day back in the 60s. How do we do that? We had a quality product. Uh, you couldn't buy a finer cosmetic than Holiday Magic because we used pharmaceutical grade ingredients. You couldn't make it better. A lady may not like it because she liked the color or the smell or whatever, but it wasn't the quality that she was objecting to. I used to tell my chemist, I won't stand on stage and hold up a jar of whatever and be able to say this is the finest product that can be made. So we've got quality out of the way. Competitively priced, they all were because you sort of had to be or else somebody else would run you out of business. And then spend your time in front of qualified uh, prospects. We talked to ladies. That's who was buying cosmetics in those days. Now men do also. So those were, you know, quality product competitively priced to qualified people with a tested and proven presentation. Selling gets real easy. Now we can call it consultant selling today, counselor selling tomorrow, and the old school that drives me crazy. That's old school selling. Selling hasn't changed much since the days of the Yankee peddler. Uh, what people want to know is what's in it for me. And it's your job to have something that's good for them and be able to explain what's in it for them. I liken it to being a sheep herder. Uh, here's what's changed about selling. The sheep dogs, the internet, social media, etc., and all our new electronic gadgets, they are faster sheep dogs. They can round up the sheep, and I don't mean sheep in a negative manner. They can round up the sheep faster 
than I was doing in the mid-60s when I had to get my A, meet you, invite you to a meeting, to make sure you'd be there, probably drive out, if I had any doubts, drive out to your house and pick you up and take you back downtown to the hotel, etc. Today, I can reach as many people with a click of a, of a mouse in seconds than I would have made in a lifetime under the old thing. But once I'm in front of them, I still have to have a quality product that's competitively priced, et cetera. I still have to have a, a tested way to describe it. I have a presentation where I talk about each item in the closers series, the books we're talking about, what, by the way, are the closers. This is part one, and we just sold the rights to part seven. So we're moving along after years of me saying, I'll never let anybody out of book. We're adding the seventh one as I speak. Um, the, We've had the quality product for years, but I used to have to send out salespeople to car dealerships and real estate companies and all to sell it. Now we can put it up and go click, or we have a thing on uh, eBay where we offer a discount and free shipping and so on. And I, I probably reached a thousand people this morning, 500 wow. of them while I was lying in bed. Right, so there's your sheep herder, busy. Yeah, the, the, the sheep herding dogs have gotten faster. But once you get them in the tent, you still got to deliver the message. Sure, and of course, you know, going back to your quality product, whatever it is, I I have a, a saying that I've been using lately, and it's I'm just blessed because my mother is still with us. And, uh, at her age, uh, to be able to have a product where you could explain to your mother and she would buy it because she saw the value, then you know you've got the right thing to sell. Yeah. In fact, I have a chapter in the closers part two, I think, where I say if, if you wouldn't sell this product, your product, whatever it is, at full price to your mother, assuming she was qualified, if you're okay. selling oil tankers, that might be a different issue, but gotcha. to your mother at full price, then you got the wrong product. You can't be ashamed of what you're doing or embarrassed by what you're doing. Get something that you like and respect and love or create something that you respect and love. There you go. And of course, you, you did that too. You were you created several businesses, didn't you? And what would you say when you look back, you, you look back and you say, well, you know, that that was probably a company that I was probably most. Was it, was it the the one you've been talking about already or were there, were there others? How, uh, yeah, Holiday Magic Cosmetics. Uh, I think I, I wouldn't be with a company if I wasn't proud of it and so on. I wouldn't sell it and, and so on. But as far as an achievement where I used to walk into the con control room and go, wow, it was when I invented the call center industry, uh, toll free. It was to replace answer, old fashioned answering services and few lame attempts at, at a call center. They didn't get the point. Um, I didn't invent the telephone. I didn't invent what we used to call watts lines, 800 lines, with wide area, some traffic service. I'm whatever. so sorry. I just don't know what you're talking about. I didn't read my history. <laughs> I didn't invent any, and I didn't invent answering services. I just figured out a way to combine them all and make it manageable and give far better service. And so how'd you do your call center? So, you tell me yours and I'll tell you mine. Go ahead. Well, what I did was it was the National Communications Center started in 1976. I was out on the road as a speaker and I back then toll free uh, was 
hard to get and hard to find and expensive if you're the one that owes the number. We paid $10,000 a month per line in advance for 240 hours. Then next month, you got a new bill for 10,000 plus the overtime from the time before. So everybody thought they were wonderful, but nobody could afford them or use them. So I thought the timeshare business was just starting and I was working with a few of the fledgling companies. And I thought, what if we timeshared an 800 number? We all dial the same 800 number and then we sort them out by the caller asking for an operator number or a department number or an account number or what have you. It's like a magazine. You know, you, you get the magazine in your hands and you flip through it and decide what you want to see or read. So we had in the beginning at a card table with a dead plant, with me and whichever lady was on duty, uh, starting out for several what hours. Hey, stop, oh, stop, oh, oh. Shut the door. A card table with a dead plant? Well, I don't, I'm not good at plants. If you want a plant to die, send it to me. It's 100 years old. It'll be dead within a couple of days. <laughs> so I thought I'd oh. dress up the office with a plant and rather That's promptly rich. it died. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what it was, was the phone rang and we'd say, thank you for calling. Uh, how may I help you? Same way I answer the phone now. Thank you for calling. How may I help you? Two hours before the phone rang the first time, and they said, operator number whatever. Well, we probably only had three or four clients at the time, but they were important. Sharper Image joined us right in the very beginning, Xerox, and several others. But you said operator 12, and we, in the, rather quickly, we have a thick book, like a New York phone directory, but in front of every rep. But in the early days, we probably had two sheets of paper. I forget if we had them in a binder or not. But operator 12, please. This is operator 12. I've been asked by it to take your name, your address, and whatever. And we took the order. If it was an order, or we took a message or whatever. But it was bro broken down on we all dial 1-800 number. So it's not $10,000 per client. It's $10,000 per client until you have two clients. Then it's $5,000 each when you have four developers and so on. Now, here's a cute little thing about the call center business because I know you're familiar with it. Uh, the uh, When I started, what I wanted was what I wanted. I wanted to be on the road because I was anyway. And I wanted to call in toll free and pick up my messages uh, and, and or tell them where I was. We didn't have cell phones and everything. So I would report in. I'm at the Park Sheridan Hotel in New York, phone number so-and-so, room number so-and-so. So if somebody want to reach me, they could leave a message or the operator would say, uh, well, I can tell you right where he is. You want to call him directly. So that was sort of the uh, forerunner of the call center business, uh, of the cell phone benefit. Uh, when I left the business 10 years later, coach, you will get a kick out of this. 98% of our business came from services other than my original idea. There were very few, very few speakers around. I mean, there were several thousand that called themselves speakers, but making a living on the road, getting on an airplane at any given time, there's a few hundred that are really making money, unless they work for a company and travel around. 
So I was, I was a cult, as I've, I've made this mistake at other times in my life, I was a cult of one. And, uh, but we let our customers teach. One day a guy called inside, I just want you to take messages. I said, I'm very sorry, or whoever talked to him said, I'm very sorry. Uh, we don't do that. We get the executive service and the locator service and so on and so on. And, and he said, okay, and hung up. And one of my operators, Virginia Helm, said, why don't we just take messages? People ask for that all the time. They do? Huh. Uh-oh. Yeah. So I said, yeah. <laughs> I was on the phone, too. I don't know why I didn't catch it. So we added a message service for less figure. Then uh, one of our crafty clients, it may have been uh, Richard Tallheimer, who owned and ran Sharper Image. He's now Richard Solo, but same guy, same concept. Uh, bought a $50 a month message service and started running ads. And we were taking name, number, so on. And uh, a gentleman who worked with me said, you know, they, that could cost us a lot of money. Well, my attitude was, we already paid for 240 hours and we're not using it. What, the, what difference does it make? And uh, but then rather quickly, I discovered that a very profitable part of our business might be ad response so much per call instead of a flat rate. So we added that, added messages, added uh, ad response, et cetera. And those two and a few other things we did quickly and to the end, 98% of the business. So I, I started a business, followed Dr. Hill's advice of take action, uh, fire, ready, aim, and I was wrong. But because we were up and running and had the phone lines and we were starting to hire people to come in, we just had to shift. And when we shifted and created something closer to the current call center industry, uh, I was just hired to be a top dog scriptwriter with a, uh, a new call center. And they're using artificial intelligence. Right. So I, yeah, I was so brilliant. I got rid of the, the people sitting in front of a, a, a switchboard plugging in things and got it down to a headset the phone in front of you and if it rang then figure out why they call you no longer dr thompson's office and now they're, they're skipping over and then the call center you ask originally you know what did you like the most i love creating that and there was nothing coach more exciting than standing in the call center at uh, Oh, five o'clock in the morning Pacific time when the East Coast started waking up and people were ordering things and calling in for their messages and the room just came alive. So we went from waiting for a couple hours for our first call to 50 to 60,000 calls a day. And every one of them was answered by a script and every one of them was responded to by a script. So now through our artificial intelligence, uh, I'm having to write scripts for all of the new company's clients, not knowing, I'll, I'll know rather quickly, but not knowing what the person's going to say and have to have a script for that, which generates a script for what comes next and so on. So, and it, now that there's a business, you're familiar with artificial intelligence and work in that business. There's a business, if you don't have it scripted, you're dead. You know, we, I may have finally won the scripting argument. You either have scripts and standardized replies or you're dead. And when we built Holiday Magic Cosmetics to the volume we did at 7.59 local time, 
in, I don't know, 30 or 40 countries, somebody stepped to the front of the room and in their local language said, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Helen the Blank. It's my pleasure to welcome you tonight. And I, I'm a general distributor with Fill in the Blank because we have five major companies all using the same marketing plan. Uh, that all they magic originally used that we sold more oil or additives, Bob Cummings, vitamins, clothing, etc. But every single one of them said verbatim the same thing, or after one warning, we terminated. We got it right, don't screw with us, was the basic message. Yeah, I get it. And wow, what a brilliant uh, game plan. Absolutely. I'm a simple guy, so you have to keep it simple or I can't do it. Uh, that's what you keep, was, that's what you keep telling them, country boy, right? <laughs> well, there's some truth to it. And I've seen some uh, some artificial intelligence programs that have been flashed uh, to, to us uh, recently, whereby once the, the program has been scripted, then the whole syntax and cadence gets tweaked so that the artificial intelligence reply comes a little delayed as if they went and they asked Fred first before they gave the answer. <laughs> some of them are very good, some of them are very bad. It reminds me of the early days of the computer when an IBM 360 twin disk drive took up a large office space and had five or six people in white coats running. But now you have more power than that uh, in your cell phone. So. Uh, you also have more power in your cell phone than they had when they launched the Mercury uh, program at NASA. We were sending people later to the moon with less firepower than you have on your cell phone. Sort of interesting and semi-amazing. But uh, the industry has changed rapidly and improved. But like we used to say about computers, what it enables you now to do is to make mistakes faster. If you're wrong with artificial intelligence, you're really wrong. And you can do it at high speed to thousands of people. So you've got to get it right. We have one here that calls periodically, when I say here in our home, and it said this voice it sounds like a radio DJ, which is another mistake in artificial intelligence that you sound like normal humans. Uh, this voice says, Lorna, Gigi's real name is Lorna Jeanette Gay. And she goes by Gigi because everybody in the family was named Lorna, so they couldn't use that. And Jeanette was too long, so they shortened it to Gigi. So if you've known Gigi past the first grade, you know her as Gigi. If you call her Lorna, you only knew her in kindergarten in the first grade. Or you're looking at some official document, her driver's license says Lorna. Okay, so, so AI so, wouldn't know that, right? Just they're going yeah, with No, yeah, they do Lorna. Male voice didn't trip them up because uh, I answer the phone 90% of the time at home. Uh, and that, that doesn't catch them. And then no matter what I say, it says, great. Well, I'm calling in some political thing because the political season has started. Yes. And uh, I'll have to make a note next time I, he or she calls so I can know who not to vote for. It is really aggravating and so funny. And that could easily be fixed if they were clients of my new company. We'd fix it. And how would you do that? 
Oh, in that case, I would start out with telephone manners. When people call here and say, Ben, or is, uh, is this Ben Gay? And I go, oh, your mother didn't teach you telephone manners. Let's start over. Ring, ring. I say, thank you for calling. How may I help you? And you say, my name is Bob Smith, whatever. <laughs> I'm with the XYZ company. And the reason I'm calling is, now, do you want to call back and do it or you want to just start from right here? <laughs> I, I don't have, I, I call friends. I know they have caller ID and they know me and they know my voice. I start every call with, hi, this is Ben Gay. I don't want them to spend a second wondering who it is. Maybe they're on a phone that doesn't have caller ID, whatever. Uh, and if it's not, if it's a little less than a friend, hi, this is Ben Gay, uh, with the closers, perhaps, if that's appropriate. The reason I'm calling is, so I don't have, I don't start off with five opportunities to offend the recipient of the caller. Let's clear up who we are, why we're calling. The reason I'm calling is, and then you go right into it's sick. Treat people like you want to be treated and tricking me when you trick me to answer an email or trick me on the phone i'm mad Conf i coined the term years ago confused minds don't buy mad minds don't buy either yes <clears throat> and you brought me to a point a sweet spot here in this uh, episode with you uh, it's been a delight to to hear uh, you narrate some of these amazing experiences that you've had, and I, I'm sure you have so many more. Our audiences would love to hear, but I want to I want to dig into uh, something that you touched on just now, which I believe there's a famine. There's a famine about good manners. Yes. Yeah. They about, don't have you them. Know, just, just, you know, I, I kind of go back to, uh, Ben, you're not going to believe this, but <clears throat> because I'm such a young fellow, I never really saw some of the old television programs that my grandfather used to be watching, like Mayberry RFD. Yeah, well, and that Mayberry RFD was the successor to the original one. Right? Was it was that the Andy Griffith show? That was that was sort of yeah they yeah they changed a few characters and brought it back and so on. But yeah, I'm sorry, I interrupted. Well, no, that but was just those were just the, time. the the epitome of uh, Americana, you know, apple pie. Of uh, OP, uh, Aunt B, good old manners, manners and Ozzy and Harriet, good, 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 good yeah, good, you know, just human decency and and where has it gone and and where wh what place does it have in today's world, which is you know looking forward to you know how to how to use artificial intelligence in a way to be able to reach more people and and yet somehow we've crossed the gray line of forgetting human decency and good manners. Well, here's the good news for those of us who have good manners and for those of you who either have them or are willing to develop them. There's even classes you can go to to learn how to have good manners, believe it or not. I think Dale Carnegie does something about along those lines. But I'm a Southern gentleman. I'm 78 years old. I was raised in the South by a Southerner, and plus my mother. But my dad was an old Alabamian. And uh, I was raised, yes ma'am, no ma'am, yes sir, no sir. A woman walks in the room, I stand up. Uh, when we're 
seated, getting seated at the table. I'm always the last one seated, having just seated, pushing the chair for the hostess. I open doors. I open, people have kitted Gigi. If, when Ben goes, we're going to find you having starved to death in your car because we don't think you know how to open. Open your own door. door. Yeah. <laughs> you just sit in there looking around. I had a young neighbor who's uh, the son of a neighbor, I guess. I know what house he comes out of. He asked me one day, is Mrs. Gay okay? And I said, yeah, unless you know something. I don't know why. He said, well, I noticed you always help her in the car and help her out. I thought maybe there was something wrong. And I said, son, I haven't got time right now, but we got to spend some time together. Now, <laughs> I said all that to say this. Here's the good news. Bad manners or no manners are so prevalent today. If you have good manners, you get 10 times the credit for having them than you would have in my old childhood era. In my era, era, you stood for a woman and said yes ma'am or no ma'am, or you got backhanded. Uh, today, it's unusual and people go, oh, we get better service in restaurants, we get better service in stores that we go to on a regular basis, and I can break somebody down, make my friend in 30 to 40 seconds, I make a game of it, and it's all using good manners. To your original question, here's our problem. And I saw it developing and I didn't know it. I moved to California in 60, 67. I had won the presidency of Holiday Magic. So I moved from Atlanta out here in 67, which was the summer of love. Right across, I was in Marin County, right across the Golden Gate Bridge was Golden Gate Park and Haight Ashbury and all. The summer of love, and if I'd been paying attention, I would have realized we were losing a generation. Uh, some of them came out of it fine, but most of them came out of it with a skewed version of reality. Then they had children who were raised by people with a skewed version of reality and less manners than the generation before them. And now we're dealing in restaurants and so on with their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. They are two, three, four generations away from knowing what good manners are, but that's okay. Sad for society. My kids know good manners. They're always, you know, I, I'll say, have you ever met Tony? Tony? Yes. What a gentleman he is. Wow. And, and so on, they compliment. He was just raised a Southerner. He was born and raised in California, but I raised him as a Southerner. And I mean that in all the best aspects. There's some downsides to being a Southerner, but not many. Uh, if you mean good hospitality, good food, and good manners, that's the South to me. And uh, notice how many people with Southern accents and so on have succeeded in selling and public speaking and so on. I trained away much of my Southern accent because somebody once told me that it sounded uneducated. Zig didn't, and I, and I sort of eased back into it. When I go on stage now, Coach, I get very Southern. I turn it right back on. If you ever hear a lady with a Southern accent and you compliment her on it, she'll crank it up. The next sentence out of her mouth is deep South because people love it. And part of it is the graciousness, the graciousness that comes with it. Yes, you've said it, said it all there. It's the it's that graciousness. 
and that that's a that's a that's a, speaks to the integrity of how families were nurturing their kids how they taught them how to behave properly uh, yeah uh, you you mentioned a backhand or what we used to say in South Carolina would be a near whooping but at the end of the day, <laughs> yeah. my, my, here's, here's the best one. I don't know if this ever happened to you. My grandmother used to say, now listen here. I want you to go outside in the backyard and find yourself a switch because I'm going to get you with it. So go get that switch. We'd be out there for hours till it got dark. Yeah, yeah you, you don't want to find one. I'm still looking for that switch. We'd come in with a little <laughs> yeah. You don't want to find one right away. No, sir. Never. <laughs> you, no, you always want a delayed reaction. My, my uh, mother a couple of times tried to whip me with a, a hairbrush, but she was never uh, savvy enough to ask me to take my Levi's down. And she was a little person. So her giving me a, a, a spanking with a hairbrush was amusing. And one day I made the mistake of laughing. And about 5.30, the big Buick or whatever it was at the time, but dad was a Buick driver, roadmaster. You hear big roadmaster come down East Lake Drive, turn into our driveway, pull in under the house, go around as I pull under the house, and hear him come up the steps. Mother would always greet him in the kitchen and hug, and then they would chat for a minute. And one day I'm somewhere, living in her bedroom, whatever, and I knew the routine. Dad's home, they're talking, and he said, he laughed at you? And I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> I, I sort of thought maybe mom had forgotten that by that time. Well, I wasn't sent out for a switch. Uh, he was ample all by himself. And uh, it was the last time I laughed at my mother inappropriately. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Because they taught us respect, right? And that's, that's yep. before Aretha Franklin sang the song. Yep. Yes, sir. Love that. I appreciate uh, meeting you today, sir. It's been a great honor for me, and I, I can certainly envision having you uh, guest do a guest spot with us again. Uh, we're getting ready to to launch a, a program which I'd like to enlist you in. I I won't uh, un, un, uncrack the unwrap the package now, but I'll drop you some private communication. Let you see if, what you think about it. I like to just see. Uh, what you, how that resonates with you. And in the meantime, I'd like to, uh, our editing team is gonna be dropping in your links uh, when this when this comes out and uh, it should be very soon. So uh, you'll get a look at that too. So all of you who are listening, who joined us today, if, if, if ever you had an inclination to make a living selling, which is, they say, the, the highest paid profession in the world, if you're doing it the right way, uh, is selling. And so this is a man who uh, broke records, uh, is still legendary today, he's still busy today, influencing sales organizations, marketing organizations through his uh, communication style. And you can see what a classic Southern gentleman he is to speak to, just like one of us. He'll help you and he'll speak to you in his book so you'll be able to hear his words of wisdom come through the pages look him up adopt him as a mentor nassau did if he's good enough for the apollo missions he's certainly good enough for me it's gonna be good enough for you thank you so much ben gay it's been an honor pleasure thanks for being so possible on the mission on possible show thank you coach i appreciate it yes sir god bless
Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining the mission. We welcome you to explore our next mission on Possible with Coach MJ. Welcome. Meet ordinary people who have achieved the extraordinary. Join us on the Mission Impossible show with Coach MJ. Like, comment, and share to inspire others to be possible today.